All right. Log Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. My very special guest tonight is Kevin M. Hitchman. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm glad you're with me tonight. We're going to have a great time. Let's begin this journey together, okay? All right. All right. What is poetry, Kevin? Uh, To me, poetry is its own life form. Um. I think I think when you write something uh, that really connects with you and hopefully will connect with someone else out there, it generates its own energy field uh, without sounding too pretentious. I, I think it takes on a life. It can it can take on a life of its own. Tell me more about this life form. I, I like that. I like that concept. Um, because I think poetry is unique. Um, in the arts, um, you can always return to it very easily. Like I have several books in my collection that I return to almost on a on a daily, if not weekly, basis to get information, to get inspiration. Uh, so I think it's very valuable. I think you know, uh, yeah. I think it takes on a life of its own. It, it lives uh, from the poet uh, from the poet's vision. It lives in your mind. Uh, or other people's minds, and uh, you know, can live there forever if you desire. Oh, wow. I like the way you phrase that—that that it can live there forever. You've published a new book, just yes. another small town story. Tell me about it. Um, this book uh, came about through—I uh, was going crazy during the whole COVID lockdown quarantine thing, yes. and. Uh, yeah, and decided that I really wanted to uh, refocus on my writing, and, and writing became something that I almost had to do to keep my wits about me. And um, I had met uh, John Patrick Robbins uh, during that time, and uh, he wanted me to do a book for, he wanted me to belong to his press, which is the uh, Whiskey City Press, and he asked me if I would uh, you know, be a member. I said, sure. And then I really wanted to put out a book with him, and I didn't really have anything ready. So I thought, you know, now's the time to do something a little different. I wanted to go back and capture what it was like growing up uh, somewhat as a misfit in a very small town, you know. So, uh, and then, then I sat down, and it just started coming out, you know, just started pouring out onto the page. And before you know it, I had the, he was really surprised because I'm like, hey, I got this, I got a book for you. He's like, already? <laughs> oh, wow. I'm like, yeah, because it, it, it came so fast. And it was really a pleasure to do because, uh, you know, remembering, uh, getting lost in that, in that world of memories was yes. very interesting. And, uh, yeah. What did you learn about yourself writing this book? Uh, I learned that I could write something other than a poem. Um, oddly enough, mm. I'd been writing, you know, I'd been writing poetry for so many years, and uh, 
I wanted to, I, I didn't think I could write short stories. I wasn't sure about my, my abilities as a, as a nonfiction writer. So I thought, you know, I want to, these pieces really needed to be longer story-like pieces. Not, not everything wanted to fit into poetry as, as we know. Okay. So, um, yes. yeah, so that's how that came about. What are some of the predominant themes of your work? Uh, predominant themes, probably um, a big theme for me is how the outsider uh, or the visionary, I guess they would, they could be both, they would be both ideally, but how the outsider uh, survives, uh, how people who are on the fringes of society, people that are uh, not part of the so-called system or don't or don't want to be as you know want to be part of that as little as possible how they survive and and the alternatives that are available and how you uh you know the fight to to stay the individual that you believe that you are because mm. uh, it's not easy and I, and, yeah no, it's I'm not sorry. something i feel that Oh, I'm sorry too. I'm, uh, it's not something that I feel is encouraged by society yeah. greatly. So it becomes an individual struggle that one has to navigate. Oh, very nice. Very nicely stated. Please share a poem or short story. Okay, I think I'll start off with a poem from the book. Um, this is going to be. Um, the House on Raspberry Lane. And this was written, uh, I was born in Philadelphia on the Navy base when they still had a Navy base. My dad worked there. So I was born there and my parents moved, uh, moved us up to Pennsylvania, uh, Lidditz, Pennsylvania, a very small town, which is where this book is based. Uh, when I was uh, three years old and the first house we had was really kind of like a crumbly little shack, but it had its own unique mysteries and charm about it. So. This is the house on Raspberry Lane. The house on Raspberry Lane, it was more like a shack. Everything creaked and moaned. It was the house my baby sister came home to. I spent my days lost in imaginary worlds, although not totally oblivious to the dysfunction creeping through, leaving damp spots like a leaky roof on peeling wallpaper. It was 1969. I remember listening to tapes my Uncle Tom sent my grandmother from Nam. My parents vaguely explained to me about a war far away. My father had a motorcycle that both scared and fascinated me. My prized possession was a new sandbox where I would build and destroy entire civilizations on a daily basis. Our neighbor, Lucille, would pass our porch on her way to work chanting, Grass man, give me grass, while snapping her fingers. I forget how my mother explained her. My friend Matt lived just over a small embankment, and I loved his house. It was like an ancient mansion, complete with a tower and freight elevator we were not allowed to ride. We lived on Raspberry Lane for three years. By the time we moved to a much more modern house, I had learned a lot about how to become invisible when necessary. I now had a lot more space to hide in and more to hide from. I no longer feared creaky wooden stairs, for I realized any monsters I would meet would be human, far more dangerous than any ghost. And that's the end of that one. Oh, wow. 
How does a poem begin for you? With an idea, a form, or an image? Uh, uh, I would have to say with an image. Tell me more. Um, usually, um, I'll feel, it's, it's kind of funny, I, I get this feeling that something wants to come out, uh, something wants to be written, and then I, you know, I think a little bit about that, okay, what, what wants to come out? And um, I get, like, I'll just get a certain image. Um, you know, for instance, when, we were do it, when I was doing this book, um, it just all of a sudden came to me, like, you know, you've got to write something about that house on Raspberry Lane because it had a certain significance. So then I pictured the house and the poem sort of, you know, came from that. You know, just listening to that one particular piece, your voice is very, very distinctive. What is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? Um, it's funny. I think my reading voice, I, I'm a little more conscious of, of how it sounds and maybe projecting in a certain way. Um, okay. Uh, uh, my speaking voice tends to be, I tend to be very aloof and kind of silly in my day-to-day -day life a lot of the time. Oh, really? <laughs> so, right. yeah, yeah, believe it or not, right? It, I'm, I'm really two sides of a coin, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, if, if you saw me on my job or, or you talked to me on the street, I would probably be, I wouldn't be putting as much thought into that voice. So it would be a little more, it'd be a little, <laughs> it'll be a little more, it'd be different to say the least. <laughs> okay. All right. I understand. Uh, uh, yeah. I understand. You know, all great writers have great writing influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes? Oh, okay. I started out, um, I was inspired by the rock and roll poets, uh, notably Patti Smith of, of, you know, of the early uh, punk days, the pre-punk pre days uh, in New York. But I, I had gotten into her music and she always combined poetry and music on each, on each record. So I was immediately fascinated by someone that was doing that. And I liked it because she would use she would use uh, imagery, and, and there'd be some really far-out stuff, stuff I didn't even understand, but the energy mm -hmm. and the feeling was always there. It always gave me that rush, that mixture of words and music. And um, so that, that was one of the first ones. And then I got into the beat poets. I'm still really enamored uh, with the beat poets. People like... Uh, I, my heroines, my heroes are always heroines. They're always female, usually. Um, so, like Diane De Prima was a huge influence because she would talk about she would talk about complex things in simple language that I felt everyone could enjoy or everyone could uh, could uh, get something from. Not just elitist, not just academic, and uh, it would be something for the for the person on the street. You know, street street poetry. I like I like that idea. So yeah, it was the piece of Diane De Prima, and then I like uh, I really like Joanne Kiger. Uh, of course, you know I, I read my share of Burroughs. I liked Burroughs for his his surrealism. Um, same thing with Ginsburg, uh, Kerouac. The same thing there. Um, but but they would talk about all aspects of their lives, their sexuality, their spirituality, and I wanted to do that too. And uh, so they were they were great um, you know teachers in that regard. 
All right, let's go back even further. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Um, I think, um, well, it's a poet, like in my lifetime, only a few things really truly move me. Move me okay. on a, a transcend, you know, in a transcendent way uh, that gives you that um, almost like an out of body experience. But they they take you somewhere out of yourself. And you know, of course, rock and roll was the first thing that did that. Yes. And uh, and then poetry actually started to do it first within the music, and then right off the page, it started to do that for me. So I think when I um, you know, I started reading people that would just blow my mind or, or give me a whole new way to look at something or even in some cases say something that I didn't know how to say. And then I realized the power that language has and, and just the fun you can have uh, with images, and throwing words around, trying to get that perfect combination. You know, that, that can be quite a thrill as well. It can also be a big pain in the ass as well. But yes, it's true. It's true. <laughs> well... <laughs> Please share another <laughs> short story or poem. I'm ready for either. Okay, I, I guess we'll switch to a more of a short story thing. Um, let's see here. I, well, we were talking about Patti Smith, so I'm going to read a longer piece called Patti Smith, My Mom and Me. And this was about how I first discovered Patty, and my mom also first discovered Patty, and we both had very different reactions to her. <laughs> okay, Patty right. Smith, my mom and me. It was 1978. I was 14 and floundering in a small town, nowhere, USA. I spent most of my time shuffling between being bored sick at school and playing the proverbial black sheep at home. I was a rebel in thought only. It was still an innocent time. The town had three shoe factories, one paper mill, a chocolate factory, and a place that made, that made leg hold traps for catching animals before they were forced to stop making them. The 70s were awash in a lazy cloud of naivete. Conformity was law, no questions asked, no answers tolerated. I had cultivated an early interest in pop music that supplanted my need for socializing. My mom played the small transistor radio she kept stashed on a cart in the kitchen a cart with wheels that never moved. One morning, my sister and I were goofing around, being silly, pestering my mother as she prepared lunch, when time halted for me because of the song. The song began inconspicuously enough with a pretty piano, but when the voice broke in, my world shifted. Skull rockets fired. My neurons were sent skipping over a lake of fire. I'd never heard anything like that voice. It was pure sex, the dangerous kind. It was romantic yet threatening. I needed more. It was Patti Smith's brand new single, Because of the Night, and it launched me on a lifetime of exploration. I found the record and the photo on the sleeve, Remember 45s, was as unusual and captivating as the tune nestled inside. A wild-looking woman with unkempt hair was cupping her breast in one hand. It was all there, the power, the passion, the mystery. Needless to say, I spun that little 45 many, many times, never getting enough of the thrill. This was a blinding love, one that ravishes as it strips away the many layers of pretense we wear as protection. I had to buy the album. The cover of the LP was another jolt. Patty looking tough and a bit ravaged, with sporting underarm hair in the photo. Flipping it over, I gazed at the song titles, Rock and Roll Nigger, 
whoa, I knew some kind of portal was about to open in front of me. It was also going to open in the family living room where the only stereo was located. My mom hadn't yet commented on my new discovery. That would change rather abruptly. I got the album home, burning with anticipation, and immediately put it on. This was raw rock and roll, and this woman sang it like no one I'd heard before. I was aware of punk, but hadn't delved into it just yet. Patty made my palms sweat, my glands secrete. She took my imagination hostage, and I could not have been a more willing victim. Everything was going fine until we got the babalog, the spoken word piece that segs brilliantly into the aforementioned N-word song. My mom was in the kitchen doing dishes and didn't catch Patty declaiming, I haven't fucked much with the past, but I fucked plenty with the future. I was relieved at first, but the sensitive slang kept coming, not to mention the dicey religious metaphors. By the close of side one of Easter, Patty had run through a litany of words my mother would find offensive, but still hadn't noticed. I, of course, had lowered the volume considerably by then. Things were only heating up. I made it through the first side of the album, but was not prepared for the opening salvo on side two. Patty ends the 60s cover tune privilege by chanting, I'm so young, I'm so goddamn young, and then the final few goddamn she finishes the song with. My mom heard all of these and came into the room. I was caught. To my parents' credit, they never forbade me any music or literature I craved, even as they both became darker and more threatening to the moors they aspired to. After Privilege, there were only a couple of shits, and the album was over. Soon after, I received my own stereo and could close my bedroom door, crank the volume, and let Patty cuss to her heart's delight. Patty nearly got me in hot water again with my mom when I asked for her book, Babel, for Christmas. All my mom would say was how she didn't care for the language and wasn't sure it was a good idea for me to procure the book. I'm sure she was shocked when she leafed through it at the local mall. We didn't discuss Patty much after that, but a new era had begun for me. And that's the end of that one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's she much exactly really how had it an happened. impact on you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. She was yeah, she was everything there for a while. <laughs> now I want to make it clear that, that I was never it was never a sexual thing. What I'm talking yeah. about in that story, yeah, is is the adrenaline that she arose. Like she, I kind of wanted to model myself after her. Tell me more about that. How so? Um, she was so brave. She had so much courage. Um, she was never afraid, never has been, to just say whatever she feels, whatever she thinks, uh, to express her opinions, you know, in a very uncensored uh, way, not concerned about ridicule, not concerned about judgment. And I really liked that. It was, it was, that to me was power. That was what power was, mm -hmm. to be able to do that. You know, and then, of course, in her work, um, you know, there's something in her work that would offend almost anyone at any given time, you know, yeah. and as, and as an adolescent, you know, and there's nothing cooler than that when you're an adolescent. So, uh, <laughs> you know. well, here's a question for you. Has writing a poem or a short story ever humbled or frightened you? And what yes. does it? <laughs> when did yes. it happen? And what did you do afterwards? <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell yeah, me. I, can, I want to know. The answer, yeah, the answer is is really great uh, because it really it, it's in this book that it happened. Um, I wrote about a hospital experience. There's a piece called The Orderly, and I wrote about it 
very honestly exactly again what happened and then i read it and i thought uh you know i don't i don't think i want this to go in it's too personal it's it's a little you know and then john was like john the editor was like no you know man you have to put that in you're you're finally getting down to the real you know <laughs> you've got to put that in that's like and i'm like i don't know so i did put it in and and i was proud that i put it in until i realized that when we made the book for sale my family was going to find out about it rather quickly and they're all going to want a copy yes and then i thought oh you know wow like i don't know i because it because it is a little embarrassing but i got to say uh, you know in the long run um my parents haven't read that piece yet my sister has read that piece but she's she's cool and she you know no big deal but um so that kind of I honestly was a little mortified. Oh, and and my manager at work got the book and read it, you know, and she's like, "Kevin, you know, I really like your book." And I was just like, "Oh my god, she read that that orderly piece." And but, you know, <laughs> that was hard to deal with, you know, but you you I, you know, I just wasn't thinking, you know, I just because I like to let the writing flow and become natural and uh yeah, that was one that that's hard a little a little bit touchy. <laughs> All right. I understand. Well, look, let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back, all right? Sure. when it does both uh it because then it's like a then it's like a total experience first you want to be really energized you 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 want to get that you know the endorphins are flowing you want to get that like oh you know i've got something here or or i've chipped away at something here or i've uncovered something and then writing it can can exhaust you because it, it it's like giving blood or something you're, you're giving a piece of 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 you, you know, hopefully if it comes out the way that, that you want it to. So, yeah, I would say it's a lot like, it's like an intimate situation where you want to get jazzed up and energized and go for it. And then you want to leave the experience exhausted and then, you know, you've done your job. You've done your job. Let's talk about this job of being a writer. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> it can be really taxing. <laughs> you yeah, may sound good, yeah, Kevin, you know. but it can be really, it can be really taxing. <laughs> what we have to go through just to get something published. Tell me about that piece of it. Yeah, well, you know that is the hard part. Um, it's it's 
tough to feel it's tough when art and commerce have to meet because they're naturally I think at opposition uh, so when they and they do have to meet obviously or you're you know or you're, or you're not really going to be able to, to reach anyone and reaching people I think is why we really do this I think we all have a, a need uh, to reach people or we wouldn't be writing about these things but um yeah, it's frustrating when – one thing is frustrating is when you do something that you really like and it just kind of – no one else really likes it. Um, I, I often find that when I do something I really like, it kind of falls on deaf ears kind of. But when – but then people will pick pieces I think are my more mediocre pieces, and they love those, and they want to publish those. Yes. <laughs> and it's yes. like, but I'm happy. I'm happy. I, I must say I'm always grateful to anyone who's ever taken a chance and, and published me. Um, I've been published in quite a lot of places. I've been fortunate. And uh, so I'm always very grateful and, and very thankful that, that, that someone out there would, would do that um, because I often feel that my work is very personal. It, it's hard to take something personal and, and you're going to put into someone else's magazine or journal or blog, what have you. And it's their vision. So, you know, I realize that, that that's going to be difficult from the get-go. So it's always wonderful when it, when it you know, mutually fulfilling. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. We live in a world where so much is happening, the good, bad, and indifferent of living in the world. And it's hard to escape a lot of the things that happens to, to us on a daily basis, pandemic for one. Yes. What do you view or see as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? Um, I, think, I think it can be a, a couple different things, perhaps. I think that uh, you can probably get some of the best information from poetry, the most honest information from poetry. I think you can trust poetry a little bit more than than anything else perhaps any other certainly the media because we all know that that's a circus and the media is bought bought up anyway so but i think i think if, uh a, a big factor is also entertaining um uh i like and i know john feels this way uh too i like to entertain if it, like if someone picks up this book and it moves them in any way or helps them in any way at all deal with anything that they need to deal with, I would be more than gratified, you know, fulfilled with that. Because uh, that's what it's always, you know, that's what it's always done for me, and I've always been very grateful to the writers that do that for me. But, yeah, just, you know, anything, like it starts off, if it's entertainment, that's great. If it goes deeper and it moves you, if it makes you think, if it makes you change your, your thoughts, if it, if I, I really write for an emotional response. I hope people, I love it when someone says it, that something that I did makes them feel emotion, any kind, any kind of emotion. Because I think that's kind of, you know, it, that's what is the living part of it. Again, there again, if we're going to call it a life form, that's what I look at it as the, being the living part of it. Well, do you think that someone can call him or herself a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? No, to be perfectly honest, uh, I'm not interested in reading poetry that doesn't have strong emotional content. Um, I don't, you know, I, yeah. No, for me, it has to have an emotional, uh, it has to resonate emotionally. 
you know, and I do like all types of poetry. Some poetry can tickle you intellectually. It may not draw out the most emotional response, but if it tickles you intellectually, that can be all right too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really do, I do favor, like, I can't, my style and my way of approaching it, it almost comes from an emotional core. All right. Well, please share another of your works. I, I, I'm okay. enjoying our conversation, and I want to hear more. Yeah, me too. This is great. Thank you. Um, this poem is called uh, Nothing Stays the Same. And this pretty much, this piece really kind of in a nutshell for me encapsulates the uh, small town that, that I that I grew up in and that the book is uh, based on. Okay, nothing stays the same, except my unblemished memory of a small town where cruelty flourished in plain sight of the upstanding, uptight Christian plagiarists. They were lying in wait ready to burn anyone at the stake who insisted upon being an individual. Like so many people in places, the town was pretty on the outside, but rotten at the core. For many, it was a one-lane blacktop from drugs to Jesus. They have been born again with children of their own and pets they take on family vacations. My little town has traded being quaint for the tourist dollar. At least now, there are more bars than churches. And that's the end of that one. Oh, wow. Please share another. Okay. Uh, I'm going to do another shorter one here. Let me find it. This one is called Three Girls, and uh, these are three real people uh, from my past. Uh, two of them are no longer with us, and one of them, unfortunately, I'm not connected with. So, uh, Three Girls. Chris gave up music. A shame, since she was a gifted guitarist and songwriter. She packed up and headed for Vermont. She wanted to escape since the day I met her. We spent 11 years in a Gordian knot tied at both wrists by ambition and failure. Brenda was the girl next door gone wild. We were 70s kids, and at the crux of a cultural shift we did not pretend to comprehend. I remained in my tight circle of freaks I called friends. She got a car and forgot all about me. She partied like it was 1999, but it was only 1983. Deanie lived with a grandmother. She had six homes during three years, but a strength and an optimism that still astounds me. She was my first great ally, ready to destroy anyone who had something to say about my willful nonconformity or my see-through sexuality, which, ironically, she never saw. And that's the end of that one. You know, it's funny. When I read that piece originally... I thought to myself, I wanted to know more about each person. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Great. It, it, a, it really yeah. it, it drew me in like that, that I wanted to, to know more. Who who are these women? Who are these women? Okay. You know. Uh, yes, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you a question, but please. Oh, you want me to go? Okay. Yeah, uh, these women were uh, three of my very best friends uh, from childhood, and that would be a time period ranging from the elementary school era up into my late teens. And uh, they were they were all like in the same town, of course. Uh, two of them in my neighborhood. Uh, Chris um, was actually a romantic partner of mine for eleven years, mm. and. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, you know, she became a lesbian and I came out. So, you know, <laughs> everyone was happy. Right. But um, 
she uh, was a really talented guitarist and songwriter. She taught me a lot about um, writing music, uh, how to listen to music, how to how to do that. And um, we we had so we had a couple bands together. At one point, we we were you know we were we were young kids and we really just wanted to be rock stars. So we really worked hard at that, uh, you know, to no avail ultimately. But we did have some um, we did have some good times. We did some things that's in the book as well. It comes later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brenda mm-hmm. was uh, Brenda was my next door neighbor uh, through the seventies and eighties, and she um, a really sweet girl. She was uh, we were tight. Um, she would talk about all her boy troubles to me and I would listen. And um, she, uh, when we entered high school, she started to get into a a, a circle of uh, uh, kind of like uh, budding juvenile delinquents. And um, she really got into the drug thing and she really did party like it was 1999. And um, so we kind of lost touch. We are, our way shifted. I wasn't into anything like that at the time. And, uh, you know, I just cared about rock and roll and writing, and I didn't really want to do any of that. I, I didn't even dabble very much. So, And then Deanie, um was a person who came from a broken home, and uh, she was one of my first supporters. Like, I could show her any, anything I ever wrote, and she would just love it and praise it, even if it was total crap. You know, she was just that kind of great friend. Um, she was uh, one, of the, one of the first real supporters I've uh, ever had uh, – or across the board, you know. Um, but she always, you know, she she loved me. Um, you know, she wanted me to be her boyfriend, and uh, that didn't work, of course. But uh, I always kind of felt a little guilty about that because I couldn't do that for her. And she, you know, I, I knew how much she cared about me. So that that made that relationship very interesting. Uh, but but no matter what happened, uh, she was always right there by my side, which I greatly appreciated. All right, very nice. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Wow. You bet. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature, and you talked about it being a life force earlier. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it? Um, You know, I do like when Ginsburg said, uh, what, first right, best right, or something like that. Something like that. Mm -hmm. I do – I – my uh, the pieces that, of mine that I like the best usually come out very very quickly. It's like you just uh, it's just there. Uh, I don't do a whole lot of editing. Um, I never have. Uh, I notice as I, I get as I'm aging, I do have to check up on the editing more uh, just okay. to make sure that I you know that I didn't miss something or that um, even you know the spelling you know and all that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I like the immediacy. I, I like the poem to be as much of a, a rush for the reader as I feel that it is when I'm doing it. You know, most of the time. So yeah, editing is not my strong point. I don't. I don't want. I will not work on something that long if if it's not there. If the initial spark doesn't ignite, I just feel that it's not going to. Wow, how often do you write? I mean, you've written. You're very prolific. How often do you write? How how much time of in the course of a day do you spend writing? I'll ask that question. You know, it's funny. It's funny you should use the the term prolific for me because I'm really not that prolific. Um, I don't feel like chapbooks. 
<laughs> yeah, but that's over the course that's of a lot, lot of, of that's over the course of decades though. You know, we're talking decades. Okay. Um All right. I don't I don't write every day. Uh, there have there were times when I would write every day, uh, and I used to keep a dream journal, which I really want to get back to doing that. But I haven't done that for a little while. But I used to do that every you know. So I, there was a time when I was doing something every day, and then every night, uh, it really lapsed off um, somewhere around my late thirties, forties, and um, I tend to, yeah, I, I don't. It's weird. Like, I don't really follow any particular pattern. Um, they're, they'll, I'll go weeks without anything, and then maybe two will hit that I like, you know, or, or two will come to me. So it's really hard to say, but, it, but it, yeah, I, I don't have any formal practice or anything like that. All right. Very nice. Please share another of your works. Okay. Uh, let's see. This is going to be... A cup, this one is going to be a poem called A Couple of Cousins, and uh, it is just that. It's about a couple of cousins I was close to uh, during my formative years. Okay, A Couple of Cousins. I have a cousin named Benjamin Franklin. I saw a lot of him when I was a kid. He was the classic all-American boy, and though I certainly was not, we played many a game of baseball in his backyard. We would throw rocks at the windows of the abandoned factory that lay decaying across the railroad tracks until one of our parents caught on and ushered us back. His father, my Uncle Dick, was a firefighter, and I would spend entire visits listening to his monitor, picturing various emergencies going down. I liked visiting there because my aunt and uncle loved pop music and would always have the latest hits blaring loud from the dining room. I was also close to my cousin Kelly during my childhood years. We would sleep over at our grandmother's apartment, raiding her fridge, and staying up late to watch Love American Style, even though I had no idea what it was supposed to be about. My grandmother had a fold-out sofa bed, and it was quite an adventure to sleep on it. I would see her and my other cousins every year at Thanksgiving and Christmas. We'd play school and house for hours. These games I largely preferred to their counterparts in reality. There was a piano at Kelly's house that we weren't allowed to touch. I always thought it was strange how they kept their dining room locked. I suppose that's where all the pricey furniture lived. Kelly was fun. She took me to my first dance and danced with me all night at another cousin's wedding reception. I had a minor crush on her for a couple of years. I'm not exactly sure when and how we lost touch. Her family moved around quite a bit, and perhaps they moved further away, and so it was no longer as convenient to see them. She visited me when I was hospitalized with Guillain-Barre, Sorry, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and left me a note that said she always thought she would marry me when we were kids. I made a crucial mistake. I gave her some of my poetry and never heard from her again. That's the end of that one. <laughs> All true. <laughs> Hope she's not listening. <laughs> You know, there's an image of poets being overcome with inspiration and having to write everything out of nowhere and at once. Does this ever happen to you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, this, you know, you're, very, you're very perceptive, Michael. That's exactly how this book happened to me. Exactly. Uh, I, I found that when I, um, when I opened up that gateway to the memories, it was just like they just came flooding out. And I knew that... I had to be honest, and I, I couldn't 
I couldn't um, mess with them too much because it wouldn't be fun to read. Uh, they they couldn't be too doctored. They had to be what happened, and it had to be, uh, you know what I mean? Like it had to be real and, and raw and honest. So yet that's exactly what happened. Everything just came out. And and I did do some pieces that we did not put in the book uh, because we realized that, you know, well, that doesn't really fit or, or, or I said that somewhere else better or et cetera. But, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> if you had to, Kevin, convince a friend or colleague to read the book, just another small town story, what might you tell them? Um... I would tell them if you want to know what it was like growing up here uh, in the 70s and 80s, this is the book for you. Uh, I would also uh, tell them if they wanted to, uh, if they have any questions about why I am the way that I am, you could probably get it from this book as well. All right. All right. I like that. Let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Kevin M. Hipsman. I'm enjoying this conversation. Yes, I am as well, Michael. It's been it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear more. We'll spend the next portion of our time together just focused on your poetry. Please share whatever you like. Okay. Um, I'm going to read this. This is a shorter piece again. Um, it's called Looking Back. And um, this is a real fond memory for me because I no longer am in contact with any of the people that this poem is speaking about. Um, And and you'll, you'll, you'll get the picture, but this is called Looking Back. Looking back on the feast of friends who once sat at the picnic table in my parents' backyard, a motley assortment of misfits laughing above our pain. We knew the deck was stacked against us from day one, but our bold hearts continued to dream. Johnny, with a self-conscious stutter, and Donna, with her speech impediment, laughed as well as any of us. They came from train wreck families who had no time for them. Music brought us together, and sometimes we would dance with wild abandon in that backyard, where we were as free as we ever would be. Some of my rowdy court never made it. The others scattered on the first favorable wind that led them on to yet another chapter in the burning book of their lives. How I miss that stolen laughter. How I long for the innocence of that time. And that's the end of that one. You know, what I like about your work is that it's accessible to me. 
Um, right. How important is it to you that your work is accessible? Or should someone have to solve it to, to, to get it? Okay, you know, that's an interesting question. And uh, I do like very abstract, very imagist poems. I, I do like when you have to sort of play with your mind or, or you have okay. to kind of, you know, because you learn a lot that way. This particular project, however, my only goal was to uh, hit from an emotional core again. That was what I wanted to do. I didn't want to, I wanted to use language, but but I, I didn't want to play with it so much. I wanted, I felt that, I felt that the essence of this book was simplicity, uh, small town, you know, there you go. Um, and I did want everyone to be accessible to it. I wanted it to be like um, a snapshot in words. And, and so I didn't get very decorative uh, or far out with the language, uh, which I, like I said, I do enjoy that. I love surrealism and, uh, and I love learning about things that way and, and, and even learning new words from people's poetry that I, that was, that I haven't been familiar with. But this book, this ha I just felt that it had to be this way. And that's that's very simple and, and acceptable. All right, very nice. You know, you are a seasoned professional. If you could tell your younger writing self anything, what would it be? Um, I would say don't be discouraged by uh, you know by anything. Don't be discouraged if something is rejected. Don't be discouraged if. Uh, if, if you go through a writer's block period, uh, you know, it, obviously, you know, I've learned it will come back. Um, also, mm -hmm. don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when the voice changes, because the voice probably will change somewhat. Uh, mine, you know, my writing voice certainly has. Or I like to think that other voices come into us and flow through us, and that's where we get a lot of our stuff from. But um, that voice, wherever it comes from, you know, whoever it, whoever it belongs to, that voice will change. And, and at first I was a little afraid of that, but uh, this book helped me kick that fear, actually. It was, it's been a very thera therapeutic experience for me. Very nice, very nice. You know, they say that to see the world with complete honesty, once you look to comedians, artists, and poets, what do you think emerges naturally from your work? What do you make um, you, Kevin? What is for me? Body, I think, entire body of work. Okay, I would I would think that what emerges is you get a sense of someone who has a vision of the way they would like things to be, trying to fit themselves and the world into that vision, or trying to dare I say mold mold that vision. Um, I think that's. I think that's what I'd have to say. That's a tough one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. That that does ask a lot. Please share more work. <laughs> okay. Uh, this one is uh, probably going to be a longer piece. And, uh, All right. Let's see. Okay, it's not too long. This one's called Snow Days. It's okay. All right. And... Uh, you know how, <clears throat> excuse me. You know how when you're a kid, or at least when I was a kid, um, <clears throat> even if winter got boring, snow was the antidote. You know, snow was the was the miracle. Of it. So, yes. you know, so this is kind of about about that experiencing that. So this is snow days. I was never into winter, 
Snow helped by providing a very necessary distraction. My gaggle of misfits dug the snow, for it offered a few possibilities for relieving the incessant boredom of those long winter months. The best thing about snow were those days when school was canceled. As soon as we got word the game was on, how would we celebrate? Sledding was an option. We'd haul our sleds across town, ever in search of the most dangerous slopes. We would frequently end up in the park, for it did boast the steepest hill. This hill went straight down, nearly perpendicular to the ground. It was also dotted with small rocks, which could prove quite painful if by chance you flew over one and your sled smacked you right in the nuts. At the bottom was a stream of below freezing spring water, so a bit of navigation was required as to avoid at all costs landing in it. Snowball battles were another go-to. These could begin innocently enough with one or two participants, then escalate into full-scale injur injurious warfare involving multiple neighborhoods. Suddenly you were dodging ice balls with pebbles inside of them. Many were nearly blinded when they caught one of these in the eye. Upon tiring of the chase, we'd often start chucking snowballs at traffic, mostly trucks. The goal was just to hit the trailers, not the cabs, so the truckers wouldn't realize they'd been targeted. But, of course, every now and again, someone would strike pay dirt with the windshield of the cab, and we'd all run as fast as we could when we saw the truck's brake lights flash on. We shied away from aiming at houses, too easy to get caught. I'll never forget the time I was walking to school, carefully leaving a safe distance from the punk-ass kid walking in front of me. We were in seventh grade, and this joker liked acting tough and talking tougher. It was like retribution when suddenly he disappeared in front of my disbelieving eyes. I blinked several times, but he was gone. Turns out he'd fallen through a snow camouflage plank of ice into a deep pool of freezing water. It took him a few minutes to pull himself out. I was ready to assist if the situation proved life-threatening. I did not laugh about this until much later. <clears throat> Even though I disliked this jerk, I certainly would have not have watched him drown. He never knew I had seen the entire incident. He got up, tried to brush himself off, and continued walking rather stiffly towards the school. Why he didn't simply turn around and return home, I'll never know. Probably fight, perhaps. And that's the end of that one. <laughs> but it's good to know that you were going to step in if, if need be. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I would have I would have stepped in if need be. I was very happy that I didn't have to, I might say. Because who knows, he might have pulled me in there too, you know? <clears throat> you never know. You never know. You don't know. You just don't. <laughs> you don't. You know, we talked about our mutual friend, John Patrick Robbins. What other yes. authors are you friends with, and how do they help you become a better, a better writer? Um, when I was first starting out, there were quite a few. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's a uh, there's an awesome dude who goes by C.F. Roberts, who's a very, very underappreciated, uh, gifted poet. Um, he has a book out right now that everyone should get called um, "The Burnt Sunflower," and um, okay. I'm plugging that. I wrote, a, I wrote the foreword for it at his request, and it's just a good book. He, he had a zine at the very same time that I started my first zine. He had his first zine, and we became, uh, we just clicked, and we would publish each other and promote each other's work. So that was great. Uh, also, Dave and Anna Christie, uh, Dave is no longer with us, unfortunately, but Anna still is thriving. And um, 
They were the first true beatniks I ever met. They used to live in New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is down near Delaware. And um, going to their house was, was going to a beatnik pad. They would open it up at 11 a.m. and it would close at about 11 p.m. And everyone and anyone would come in. You were supposed to know to, to bring something. It could be anything as small as cigarettes or bring a pizza, bring some, uh, bring some booze. You would sit at this long table. They, you would sit at this bar they had in the kitchen and uh, people would recite poetry spontaneously. You would talk about all your projects. They published me quite a bit in the 90s. They were one of the first people to um, appreciate me and, and, and tell me that I should be doing this. So that, that, those are two very, very uh, good examples I could give you. All right, very nice, very nice. Now, here's a fun question for you. Okay. As a writer, <laughs> what would you choose as your mascot, avatar, or spirit animal? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> we do it all on the show. We do it all. We ask all kinds of questions. Yeah. I remember, yes, I remember this question from John's show, actually. And I was hoping you weren't going to ask me this. All right. Um, okay. Uh, my John chose all three of those. She's only, she's only chosen one of those to answer. Mascot, avatar, or spirit animal. Just one of them. I can, I'll try all three. We'll see how far we get here. Okay. Uh, okay. I, for... <laughs> This is a good one, though. I do like this question. Um, my spirit animal, I'm going to say a cat. I know that's very cliche, you know, poets and cats. But I do have three <laughs> wonderful cats, and I love cats. So I, I would pick, though, I would pick like a black panther. Okay. Uh, for my spirit animal. Uh, I, I, I want, I, I, at times I want to be beautiful, and at times I want to be frightening, and at times I want to just be <laughs> All right, I understand. Uh, for the um, for the mascot, oh. mascot. Okay, I'm gonna pick the. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I can give you a mascot. Okay. That's a tough one. <laughs> avatar. What is an What is an avatar? Is don't, that... don't ask. Don't ask. <laughs> I was hoping okay. that you would not ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> All I can think of is that movie, man. I can't think yes, of that movie. That's right. Well, an but. avatar for me, I, I, could, I could pick one. Uh, I'm going to say um, this would probably have to be a musical. This would have to be a musical person. Okay. So I'm going right. to say um, it, uh, it would be um, Mick Jagger. Oh, wow. Mick Jagger. Why him? Yeah. He why, was one of the me? earliest Okay, he he was one of the earliest performers I saw that really knew how to bring the song to life, bring the lyrics okay. to life, the songs to life. Any all of the different emotions that he could just effortlessly effortlessly uh switch up with. And he always he also was very funny at times, very comical. And I always appreciate, I love laughing at people. Like, I love to watch the Bee Poets read, and they just make me laugh. But I'm laughing with them, and I'm laughing because they're speaking for me and for the clown in my soul as well. So I'm going to oh, say wow. that, okay? 
No, it's nice, nicely, <laughs> nicely stated. Nicely stated. We have time for one or two more poems. So whatever you'd like okay. to share with us. <clears throat> All right. Um, I'm going to do a short piece that actually begins the book, and it's called Friendly Specters. I think it pretty much describes itself. Uh, uh, this is uh, when I'm seven years old. <clears throat> okay. Friendly Specters. I am seven years old, and I am digging in the front yard with my Tonka tractor. It is a screaming yellow backhoe with fore and aft moving shovels. I'm smitten with this toy because it is very realistic. It looks like the real thing, and that's incredibly important to me. The two aforementioned shovels with minor coaxing on my part would actually dig. I'm not supposed to be digging. I am to pretend to dig per my mother's stern instructions. My father had a pet peeve about digging, and she did not wish for my little excavation site to disturb him. My father was always terribly concerned about the condition of the yard, as we lived in a competitive little town that offered limited topics for genteel conversation. The grass must be kept uniform, he would bellow. We cannot have holes or dry patches. What will the neighbors think? My sister would have been two at that time. My mother would plop her down beside me for short periods, periods of sun. Back then, the sun was still considered healthy. She would grind her tiny fists in the upturned dirt and grunt loudly. We assumed she was trying to mimic the sounds I made, in this case the vroom vroom I used for the tireless engine of my tractor. It seems as if she too had inherited the need to commingle fantasy with reality. They were the two opposing elements that shaped our worlds. During one extremely human afternoon that was so hot my clothes were sticking to me, I felt a sudden presence hovering quite near. I recognized it as one of my invisible friends and so was not frightened. The visitor then seemed to melt into me and I began to feel very lighthearted, lightheaded, a feeling I would now label as giddy. The sensation soon gave way to an overwhelming sense of bliss that seemed to whisper softly to me in a language I could not decipher. I never questioned these visits and I never spoke to anyone about them. It seemed best to keep them to myself. After such occurrences, I would simply grab my tractor gather my sister, if my mother hadn't already put her down for a nap, and go about the business of being a carefree child. That's the end. Do you think okay. that you were meant to be a poet or short story writer? Uh, I don't know. I think I was meant to express stuff. <laughs> okay. All I, right. think, I think that, I think that if uh, the writing I do because uh, um, it's 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 a medium I can do it's it's available to me, but I think um, <clears throat> you know like singing, acting, anything like that. I think I uh, I can only be really happy if I'm expressing. All right, very nice. What's next for you creatively? Um. Excuse me. I'd like to do a book of. I'd like to do a poetry book uh, that is that does just stick to you know the poetic, a more poetic form. And we would. I would probably be uh, playing with language a little bit more, kind of showing off the uh, other side of of the coin. You know, it would be a kind of opposed to this book. It would be uh, a little more arty farty, or uh, I shouldn't say that. I don't want it to be that. But yeah. More, more, imagine, more imaginative language, perhaps. I, I kind of want to do that. I'd also like to write a, I'd like to do a book that's just one long poem, 
you know, in poetic oh, wow. structure. Wow, very nice. I've got to ask you to share just one more short poem before we go. Our journey is almost okay. over. Okay. But I need to hear one more without being fast. Yes. <laughs> okay. This is actually uh, this is actually the piece that closes the book. <clears throat> it's called "A Risk Is Just a Risk." Okay, and it starts out with a quote from Stevie Nicks: "A risk is just mm. a risk. The sea the sea changes color, but the sea does not change." Stevie Nicks, 1981. I would settle for a heart less empty or a head less full. If only there would have been time for us to write that one brilliant song that would have held the world hostage for a moment. Wisdom only comes with hindsight like the debris from a storm. I see pieces of our once shared dream hit the ground every time it pours. It is no longer the same rain falling on both of us. Aging is merely learning to accept loss. I have no desire to keep score. Dreams are often buried long before they die. One day I will have to put your memory into the ground. For now, I clutch it lightly, for it is a fragile thing, always fighting to escape. I face a new war now, and it's one I know I cannot win. Those charmed days of our youth will never come again. I can't ease your pain or still your panicked heart. I can't take back my many grievous mistakes. I wish you would call or write to tell me how you are. Sometimes I feel as if I have already died, and I am simply a ghost from a better vanished time, singing, A risk is just a risk but I knew that from the start. That's the end. Wow. Perfect. Everyone, just another small town story is available everywhere. Kevin, I wish you nothing but the best, and I want to thank you so much for spending time with me. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And um, Yes. Yeah, thank you, really, Michael. Thank really you did. so much. All right. Yeah, I had a great time. Well, well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> when you I write plan, that, one, to come that back. book with that one long poem, <laughs> and we'll we'll read it through. The, that'll be the whole show. Right? We'll read there it. Go. <laughs> we'll read it. <laughs> we'll take a couple of short breaks. <laughs> we'll read it the whole thing. <laughs> I, you know, we All right, do, then. We could, uh, we, we'll give you a copy, and we'll take turns reading sections. How about that? Okay, that'll work. That'll work. That'll work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to our listening audience, uh, hopefully you had as much fun as I did tonight. And as I share with you every week, let poetry ring. Be safe. Be careful out there. Until next time, good night. Good night, everybody. You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode.